Welcome to the First United Methodist Church. We hope our sermon broadcast will bless you. The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 4, and it's verses 1 through 15, and it's from the message, which is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed, although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. And to get there, he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to Sychar and a Samaritan village that bordered the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. And Jesus was worn out by the trip, so he sat down at the well, and it was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. And Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone into the village to buy food for lunch. Well, the Samaritan woman was taken aback, and she says, How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh, living water. The woman said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it, he and his sons and the livestock, and passed the well down to us? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty. I won't ever have to come back to this well again. Thank you, Bruce. So as we come to continue our worship series on looking for love today, we come to this, what I find deeply interesting story from John 4, 1 through 15, in which we find Jesus traveling through Samaria, which was not at all a typical place you would expect to find a good Jew. But in addition to that, we hear that while in Samaria, Jesus meets this woman of Sychar, who's been married and divorced five times and is currently living with a man to whom she's not even married. None of this would have sounded normal at all to a Jew or a Samaritan in that time and place. A woman was driving along a country road one day when she noticed an old man sitting on a fence rail watching the cars go by. Needing some help, she stopped to ask for directions, which the old man happily relayed to her. After she received them, she remarked, I don't think I could stand living out here as you do. You don't really see much, and you probably don't travel like I do. I am on the go all the time. The old man looked at the woman and drawled, Well, I don't see much difference in what I'm doing and what you're doing. I sit on the fence and watch the cars go by. 
you sit in your car and watch the fences go by. It's just the way you experience things. That's what our worship experiences are about as well. Some of us are frequent flyers, and some of us are not. Some of us are on the go all the time. Some of us are not. Some of us are watching the cars go by. Some of us are watching the fences go by. But however varied our day-to-day experiences may be, the worship experience is our great equalizer. Because we come together as Christ's people, because that's how we experience things. That's how we experience life and truth. But above all else, it's just the way we experience the holiness of the God we meet in Jesus Christ. In today's reading from John, Jesus is on the move, traveling in Samaria, which to a Jewish audience would have seemed more than a little bit odd. At midday, when the sun was at its hottest, he arrives at the village called Sychar and stands alone at a well to which the villagers come for water. While he was there, a woman came to draw water from the well, and Jesus, being Jesus, began to talk with her, which without a doubt would get a Jewish audience in a lather. But it doesn't stop there, because Jesus is thirsty and has nothing with him he can use to draw water from the well that is right next to him. So he asked the woman to give him a drink, and at that point, a Jewish audience hearing John's gospel might have started to riot, screaming invectives at Jesus, and possibly picking up rocks with which to stone him. But then Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem. He was in Samaria. The woman, of course, is startled by his request and reminds him that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan and that Jews and Samaritans just don't talk to one another, let alone share a drink, which is all the more true in the case of a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman of ill repute who's been married and divorced five times and is now living with a man to whom she's not even married. Like the Jews... The Samaritans were descendants of Abraham, but a wall of hatred had been built up between them over the years, with each accusing the other of being unfaithful to God. So both groups condemned any and all contact with members of the other group. Nevertheless, Jesus breaks the tradition and not only speaks to the woman, but asks her for a drink, which no doubt shocks her. Catching her breath, she replies, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? To which Jesus replies, If you know the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Almost without pause, the woman replies, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. And you say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship. Jesus replies to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship God. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. For God seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Hearing this, she replies, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he, sh- when he comes, he will show us all things. And Jesus proclaims, I am he who you are speaking to. 
When you know the gift of God, which is God's eternal and unconditional love for you, you are empowered to worship God in spirit and in truth. In Romans 5.8, the Apostle Paul describes this gift this way, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We gather together with Christ in our midst as a spirit-filled community to proclaim that this is part of how we experience things. This is how we experience life, how we experience truth, how we experience the eternal and unconditional love of God in Jesus Christ. Because as we all know, John says in chapter 3, verse 17, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In Luke 37 to 38, Luke writes, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. For the measure you give is the measure you get back. That's also how we experience God. And of course, we should never forget the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and verse 13, when he writes, Love is patient. And kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love bears all things and believes all things. So faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. The story is told of a little girl named Jenny whose father had an extremely rigid, legalistic, self righteous way of understanding God. After years of naysaying and judging other people's actions in terms of easy blacks and whites, he became so cynical that it seemed to young Jenny that every time he opened his mouth, it was to say, we don't believe in that, do we? One day, Jenny was walking with her father near the duck pond on the family farm, and Jenny ran to the edge of the pond and screamed with delight, one of the ducks had hatched her eggs and was tending to a half dozen or more fluffy little cheap cheeping newborn ducklings. Little Jenny pondered the scene for a while, then looked up at her father and asked him, Daddy, we believe in ducks, don't we? No one seems to know how he replied to his young daughter. But we can say to Jenny with absolute confidence, Yes, Jenny, we believe in ducks and we believe in their creator who is the creator of your life and your daddy's life and our life and all life. We believe in the one God who formed us out of infinite love for us and who loves us so much that he wants us for his own in his coming kingdom of love. We believe in the one God of us all who gave us the gifts of his only son to teach us how to love him in return through our love for one another. We believe this from the heart because that's the way we experience God in the deepest parts of our being. And in that spirit, which is the spirit of love, we celebrate these life-giving, life-enriching, life-saving truths that make our worship experiences a limitless wellspring of living water that relieves our spiritual thirst by drawing us ever closer to God. In my first student appointment to a church, which was actually two small churches just outside of Zanesville, Ohio, there was a man who very much seemed like Jenny's father. He had served in the Korean War and come out of it without a visible injury or problem. But as the years passed, 
he became more and more rigid and sanctimonious, judging people who, though judging people differently than he did, including me. But knowing about how he spent his time in the Korean War, I sensed that he had a brokenness of heart and spirit that had plagued him almost every day of his life since returning home from the war. It took a while for me to figure it out, but eventually he let it slip that what he had done in the Korean War was to transmit the coordinates for bombing runs against the North Korean enemy. Though it took some time, that specific duty began to eat away at him, and he began to feel incredibly guilty for every single lost life that he had been a party to in all those years, though he could not convince himself that God still loved him. In spite of any guilt he might have carried, he was convinced he had to be perfect for what years of his life on this earth remained. So I doubt he ever truly experienced the fullness of God's love for him because he lived under a constant shadow of everything, having to be perfect and right. I pray and I hope he found peace before he left this world, but even if he didn't, I'm still convinced that he was welcomed into the kingdom of God and finally experienced the fullness of God's forgiveness and love for him. I can pretty well assure you the Samaritan woman had not had an experience of God's love for her in a very long time prior to her meeting with Jesus at the well that day. She'd married and divorced no less than five times, was living with another man to whom she wasn't married, and probably felt little true love. It's almost certain she was an outcast in the community, which means she was desperately alone suffering the heartbreaking grief of each failed marriage, mostly by herself, not just once, but five times. She was almost certainly mocked and despised by many in the community, if not the majority of the community. It is also very likely that she went to the well at noon, the hottest part of the day, simply in order to avoid an onslaught of sneers and petty comments from the other women of the community who gathered much earlier in the morning or early in the evening when it was not so hot. But that eventually paid off for her when Jesus came to town and sat down by the well and waited for her to arrive. And when she arrived, Jesus not only dared to start a conversation with her, but also asked her for a drink of water, treating her very differently than she had been treated by anyone in a very, very long time. Jesus not only speaks to her, but enters fully into her life with the unconditional love of God, something she hasn't known or experienced in a very long time, if ever. How else can we explain Jesus' sudden dismantling of the walls that should have been between them? An outsider in her own community, fully aware of how others felt and talked about her, she nevertheless forgets herself runs back into the village and unabashedly tells anyone who will listen about the good news Jesus has shared with her. But she also raises a question. That good news for her was so unbelievably good that she still had lingering doubts. Her parched soul suddenly feels full of living water, but can he really be the Messiah? 
Can he really know everything she had ever done and still welcome her into worship? Can it really be true? And the resounding answer is yes. Yes, it is true. God loves her with unconditional love that is available not just on a mountain in Samaria or the temple in Jerusalem, but love that is available anytime, any place for anyone in need. This unnamed woman, the most unlikely to be chosen for anything by anybody, nevertheless experienced the love of God in Jesus when he chose to enter into her life and she chose to be accepted. But it wasn't only her life that was ultimately changed because many in the community also had life-changing experiences with Jesus because of her witness. And perhaps because of her witness, the life of the entire community was ultimately changed because when she ran back so full of love and life and spirit, it appears that the whole community nearly forgot who she was and who they were. The text tells us that at first they believed because of the changes they could see in her But in the end, they believe because of their own experiences with Jesus, who had ultimately entered into the community, spending two days among them, when many more believed because of his word. What they say to the woman at the end of the reading, which goes on beyond verse 15, isn't a put-down or an insult. It's simply a statement of reality. They acknowledge that while they first believed because of her witness, they have now come to believe because they've had an encounter with Jesus themselves. And so having heard and experienced the love of God in Jesus for themselves, they were all the more convinced Jesus truly was and is the Savior of the world, which is by far better than just believing what someone else has told you or me Because what we really want and need is to have our own personal experiences with the God we meet in Jesus Christ. A Samaritan woman at the well found out that the water she came for was not really the water she so desperately needed. This woman had looked for love in many places, in many faces, and when finally offered a soul-quenching love by Jesus, she became a powerful messenger of the good news. And so can we. Just as the water given by God that flowed in the desert when the Israelites were trekking out of Egypt, God provides the water we need, the water of life, the water of his love, the water of peace and understanding. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, there are days when we thirst deeply for more, when we can't recognize your great love for us. We thank you for sending Jesus to show us that love and to help us receive it. And we pray that that love will continue to grow in each of us in ways that will also help us make it available to others. In your name, amen.